Chapter Nine of Just As I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just As I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Nine Guilty. The next witness was a man who had known Humphrey Vargas when he lived at Osthorpe, and who identified him as an agricultural labourer who had worked at one time for Mr. Blake and had occupied a cottage on his estate. This man described how Vargas had offended Mr. Blake by poaching on the Tangley preserves, and how he and his wife had been turned out of their home, neck and crop, a day or two before the birth of his last child. The wife died within a week of her confinement, and Vargas had attributed her death to the agitation and discomfort caused by their sudden shift of quarters from a decent, weather-tight cottage to a wretched hovel in one of the lanes near Osthorpe. He had expressed himself strongly about Mr. Blake's conduct, and had shown himself vindictive. Soon after his wife's death he left Osthorpe, abandoning his young family to the care of the parish. The wife had been a steady, hard-working woman, but Vargas had been scampishly disposed at his best, not an habitual drunkard, but going on the drink at odd times and inclined to be idle. Of this witness Mr. Tomplin declined to ask any questions. Then came the evidence of the great Barford pawnbroker, at whose shop Vargas had pledged Mr. Blake's watch and chain, and who had been able to pick him out from among six men and identify him without a minute's hesitation. This witness was searchingly interrogated by Mr. Tomplin, who did all he could to shake his testimony, and to make him appear a twaddling old fool, but without success. After this followed the evidence of the late police constable of Osthorpe, a toothless old man who had been superannuated twelve years ago, but whose memory seemed unimpaired by time. He described how he had assisted at the tracing of footprints in the muddy road, hardened by a night's frost, which footprints had been since found to correspond with the form and size of the prisoner's feet with singular distinctness. Here again the counsel for the defence tried the forensic art of ridicule, but with no more effect than in the case of the pawnbroker, save so far as the eliciting of some idle laughter from the groundlings. The next and last witness was the tramp William Scaffers, otherwise Carroty Bill, who deposed to being in Vargas's company in the hop-fields near Cobham in Kent, and parting with him on the road to Dalesher. He described how they had afterwards met by accident in Blackford, and how Vargas had then been flush of coin. "'He'd done a job somewhere in the country as had put a few pounds in his pocket,' he says," pursued Mr. Scaffers, who discoursed as freely and as pleasantly in the witness-box as if he had been sitting by a tap-room fire. His easy attitude, as he lolled with folded arms upon the front of the box, was calculated to assure the jury of his perfect candour and friendliness. He kept a bit of straw at one corner of his mouth, which he chewed occasionally, as if for refreshment, and he occasionally spat, in a gentlemanly manner, upon the floor of the box. "'He stood, Sam, for a pot upon jello,' continued Mr. Scaffers, "'and naturally we got talkin'. He told me he meant to go across the airing pond and try his luck in Meriky as soon as the winter was over. I asked him if he got enough money to pay his passage, and he says he has, 
and i says that must have been a profitable job as he'd done in daleshire and he says it were a bit o luck and no mistake and he only wished he could be as lucky every month in the year and then he wouldn't quarrel with fortune nor with nobody mr tomplin in cross-examination bore rather hardly upon the witness but was able neither to shake mr scaffer's testimony nor to disturb his equanimity he was quite agreeable to answer any number of questions that might be put to him and seemed to look upon the whole business as a pleasant chat which gave free scope to his conversational powers he explained the meaning of various slang words which had given colour and vividness to his phraseology he told the jury that pongello was a familiar name for half and half and further explained that half and half was a mixture of ale and porter nothing could be more affable than his manner to the counsel save perhaps those nods and winks with which he sought to establish an understanding between himself and the jury may i inquire how much of your life has been spent out of jail during the last twenty years asked mr tomplin that's a point of etiquette for his honour to decide answered the imperturbable scaffers i should call it a unwarrantable invasion of a gentleman's private life that will do sir i think you have wasted the time of this court quite long enough said mr tomplin shortly i leave it to the jury's own powers to discover which of us two has been frittering away their valuable time since eleven o'clock this morning answered scaffers this closed the case for the prosecution mr tomplin then began his defence he started by admitting that he had a difficult task before him here was a man who stood before them self-accused of a terrible crime whose own lips had given the chief evidence against him a man who had of his own free will surrendered his liberty and invited the last punishment which the law could inflict yet in the face of this confession he should ask the jury to consider the case before them with minds unprejudiced by the prisoner's own statement and to examine that statement as if it had been the evidence of an independent witness he asked them to consider that there was actually nothing in all they had heard to-day to connect the prisoner with the murder of walter blake though there were certainly some grounds for believing that he had become possessed of the murdered man's watch and chain and had converted them for his own benefit you have been told by dr brudenell pursued mr tomplin that in his opinion both at the time of the inquest and at the present time the wounds from which mr blake died were inflicted by a sharp-edged jagged piece of wood such as a hedge stake and not by the smooth knob of a cudgel i ask you gentlemen to consider this point in the evidence and i ask you still more closely to consider the palpable improbabilities in the tale told by the prisoner you are asked to believe that he a half-starved tramp footsore and weary was able to stop mr blake a powerful man mounted on a powerful horse that he was able to drag him off his horse and so belabour him with the cudgel that he died does it not seem more reasonable to suppose gentlemen that the murderer of mr blake was a man of his own age of powerful frame like his own mounted as well as he was mounted able to attack him on equal terms 
not a poor crawling hound whom the squire of tangley could have swept out of his path as he would have spurned any four-footed cur that yelped and snapped at his horse's legs gentlemen you have to look deeper than this starving wayfarer's hunger for the motive of this crime you have to look for a great wrong and a desperate revenge you have to look for one of those terrible domestic mysteries which underlie the smooth surface of society you have to scrutinise the garbled page before you and to read between the lines and now gentlemen as for the motive of this confession the motive which can impel a man at large unsuspected free to breathe the air of heaven to give up his liberty and imperil his life i think you will find it easier to discover a motive or motives strong enough to induce an innocent man to accuse himself of a crime which he has not committed than to reconcile the improbabilities in the prisoner's account of a supposed murder we all know of that thirst for notoriety which exists in some uneducated minds a morbid desire to astonish to be talked about and pointed at and thought famous were it after the vilest fashion such a desire may have influenced the prisoner when he leapt in a moment from the dull obscurity of want and houselessness to the distinction of a supposed murderer a man to be interviewed by newspaper correspondents and to have his portrait in the penny dreadfuls gentlemen we make too much of our criminals there is a victoria cross for crime as there is for valour a man springs into fame as surely by the commission of a monstrous crime as a general by winning a great battle we have made a step towards civilization by doing away with public hangings but we shall make a longer step into the light when we cease to gloat over the details of a crime and to award the glory of a waxwork apotheosis to the thief and to the assassin the thirst for notoriety gentlemen is one obvious motive for such a confession add to this the desperation of a wretch whose only freedom was the liberty to starve by the wayside or to rot in a ditch perhaps had the workhouse been more accessible humphrey vargas would not have thrown himself into jail but who would hesitate as a mere question of personal comfort between the casual ward and the convict prison homeless in rags starving vargas saw but one certain refuge open to him and that refuge was a jail he had tasted its comforts before as a common felon he pined for the more indulgent treatment given to a murderer he reckoned on the chances against the extreme penalty of the law he argued with himself that an old man moved by remorse penitent abject confessing to a crime committed twenty years ago would be sure of lenient treatment mercy would intervene to modify the severity of the sentence he risked the hazard of the die and stands before you to-day bearing on his countenance the stamp of his character a product of our nineteenth-century civilization untaught unfed unclothed uncared for a creature whose final hope on earth is the decent shelter of a jail 
Mr. Canning Russell replied with sober brevity to the arguments for the defence. He said that a man who accused himself of a murder was, unless mad or drunk at the time of his confession, supposed to know his own mind. This man had been neither drunk nor mad. He had given a consecutive narrative, a narrative sustained by the evidence, medical and otherwise. Mr. Russell alluded with some contempt to the nice distinction between a wound from a stake and one caused by a bludgeon or cudgel. "'Gentlemen,' he exclaimed, "'I do not believe the whole College of Surgeons would be able to tell one from the other.' He dwelt on the identification of the prisoner by the pawnbroker to whom he had pledged Mr. Blake's watch and chain. This was conclusive evidence as to the robbery, and was it not too much for any reasonable mind to suppose that the robbery and the murder were two distinct crimes committed by two distinct criminals, each acting independently of the other? Surely the man who disposed of Mr. Blake's property must be the man who murdered him for the sake of that property. He had to remind the jury what very small gains had been the motive of murder in many cases that must have come within their knowledge. As to the argument that a tramp on foot was no match for Mr. Blake on horseback, it had to be considered that the tramp was a man who led a rough out-of-door life, and belonged already in a measure to the criminal classes, a man whose thews and sinews were practised in deeds of violence, and further that a gentleman walking his horse home from the hunt after a long day's hard riding could hardly be in the full possession of his normal strength but was in all likelihood exhausted and weary mr russell concluded after briefly glancing at some further points in the defence and then the judge summed up briefly severely taking care to remind the jury that the fact of a crime having been committed twenty years ago was no extenuating circumstance, that the prisoner's remorse could in no wise lessen the enormity of his guilt, that if it seemed to them that he had done this deed of which he stood accused out of his own mouth, he must pay the penalty of his crime. His case had been carefully heard, he had been ably and exhaustively defended. They were not to be carried away by oratory they were not even to be influenced by natural pity for a wretch so abject. Their duty was to arrive at their verdict upon the evidence they had heard, looking at plain facts in the sober light of common sense. The jury retired, and in less than twenty minutes returned to the box, and after the usual formalities the jury returned the verdict guilty. Then came the solemn closing act of the day. The judge put on the black cap and addressed the prisoner. Coldly, gravely, he reminded the shivering wretch of the magnitude of his crime, and told him what his fate was to be. There had been no recommendation to mercy from the jury. There was no hint of a possible commutation of the sentence from the judge. The short winter day had worn to its close before this climax was reached. Wax candles had been lighted here and there, and the yellow flames were reflected on the black oak panelling as in turbid water. The faces in the crowded court 
had all the same one strained look in the dim and unequal light there were strange effects of light and shade as in a picture by rembrandt the figures of the officials moving to and fro in the dusk had a goblin look the judge projected a monstrous shadow of his wig and gown upon the ceiling the dark crimson draperies looked black as if the court had been draped for a funeral mrs aspinall shook out the sable tails on the edge of her mantle and gave a shuddering sigh <sighs> i had no idea the trial of a poor common creature could be made so interesting she said to sir everard courtenay who sat near her how wonderfully clever those counsel are and how warmly they enter into it just as if they really cared what became of the poor creature don't you know but i'm rather glad it's all over as i ordered my carriage for four o'clock and those poor chestnuts of mine must have been shivering for the last three-quarters of an hour would it be too much for me to ask you to see me through the crowd i shall be delighted said sir everard your pretty little daughter ought to have been here to-day observed the frivolous matron she has lost a treat i should be very sorry for my daughter to see such a painful scene oh, but really now it was all so quietly done and those barristers are such gentlemanly creatures there was nothing to offend the most sensitive mind perhaps not but i am glad dulcie was out of it replied sir everard gravely may i offer you my arm he led the lady to her carriage which was waiting in front of the assize court shall i drive you home asked mrs aspinall when she was seated in her snug brougham it won't be far out of my way to go through osthorpe you are very good but i have my horse here and i must ride home as fast as i can to dress for the sheriff's dinner you are going to dine with sir nathaniel uh, yes and i am to meet the judge and the leading counsel oh and you will have the delightful opportunity of talking over the trial i quite envy you shall you ride home by osthorpe lane past the scene of the murder naturally since that is the shortest way and the best road have you not a vague fear of seeing walter blake's ghost as you pass the spot to-night i have passed the spot any time for the last twenty years and have seen no ghost oh but this evening when your mind is full of the poor man might not imagination conjure up his image i leave the enjoyment of a vivid imagination to your more impressionable sex mrs aspinall mine is not lively enough to shape poor blake's ghost out of the mists of evening shadows to-night have struck more terror to the soul of richard than can the substance of ten thousand soldiers quoted mrs aspinall laughingly are you made of sterner stuff than crook-backed dick <laughs> but you have not his guilty conscience and that makes all the difference uh, when are you going to bring dulcie to dine with me whenever you like to ask us oh, but that is always you have a standing invitation to drive over and dine at the towers in a friendly impromptu way and you never come you are asked to formal dinners and you have always some excuse for refusing you are a positive hermit i own to a love of my own fireside 
but I like pleasant society also. Uh, may I bring Dulcie to-morrow, if you're going to be at home? Oh, I shall be charmed. The usual quarter to eight, I suppose. Oh, yes. Good night. I am so glad. They shook hands, and the brougham drove off, leaving Sir Everard standing in front of the assize court, the observed of the little crowd waiting to see the notabilities come out. He walked briskly off to the peacock to get his horse, and found Morton Blake in the stable-yard on the same errand. "'Well, Morton, are you satisfied now?' he asked. "'Yes, I suppose I am satisfied. And yet I have a curious feeling of incompleteness in the whole thing, as if there were something yet wanting, as if we had reached only a preliminary stage in the discovery of the truth. Can there be anything behind, do you think, Sir Everard? Had this man an accomplice? Was he the tool of a greater villain? My dear Morton, the whole story seems obvious and commonplace to the last degree. A starving wretch by the wayside, brutalised by ignorance and want, ready to commit any crime in order to prolong his worthless life. My mind has been troubled by the council's suggestions of a deeper motive, a mystery underlying the apparently commonplace story. My dear fellow, the council was paid to talk. He had to set up some kind of defence to suggest a doubt when there was no room for doubt. Having no case, and being a man of small experience, he indulged his oratorical powers at the expense of common sense. Shall we ride home together? If you please. Their horses had been brought out by this time. They mounted and rode under the old archway, beneath which so many a stagecoach had rattled and rumbled in the days before railways. They rode slowly through the narrow town, to the wide high road, bordered on each side by grassy strips of wasteland, from which Osthorpe Lane diverged. They rode at a sharp trot after they left the town, and only pulled up their horses as they approached Blatchmarden Copse, near the scene of the murder. "'My dear Morton, it grieves me to see you so depressed,' said Sir Everard, as they walked gently past the little wood. "'All has been done that can be done. Justice is satisfied.' Why should the loss and sorrow of twenty years ago, the grief of your childhood, be suffered to cloud your manhood with gloom? It is hardly fair to my poor little Dulcie that you should abandon your mind to one all-absorbing idea. She has had very little happiness from your society since her last sad birthday. Oh, yes, I know I'm wrong, answered the younger man. I have brooded too much upon the past. But now, as you say, justice will be done. I ought to be satisfied. I fancy that no son whose father, a loving and beloved father, died as mine died, could ever completely put aside his grief for that loss. But I will not yield in an unmanly way to that morbid feeling. My father is avenged. That ought to be enough for me. I hope you understand that, through all the trouble and excitement of the last six weeks, my love for Dulcie has not been a jot the less real and true because I have kept myself aloof from her. I would not cloud her fair young life with my sorrow, and I could not take life lightly or pleasantly during that period of suspense. Tonight 
I will put all trouble out of my mind, and will make myself happy in my darling's society. This was said with a manly frankness, of which Sir Everard could but approve. They had passed the scene of the murder while Morton was speaking, and his companion saw the young man's shrinking glance at the weedy ditch, the steep bank and the pollard oak above it, whose bare branches stood sharply out against the grey evening sky, a perpetual sign to mark the fatal spot. What a happy evening that was for gentle Dulcie! She was near the gate waiting for her father's coming as the two men rode into the avenue, a graceful little figure in a furred jacket, with the pale gold of her hair just visible under a coquettish little fur hat. Morton alighted quickly, and was by her side before she had recovered from her surprise at seeing him. "'I thought you were never coming here any more,' she said, it being something less than a week since his last visit. "'I did not care to come often while I had trouble on my mind, Dulcie, but now it's all over. I am your slave again.' "'Is the poor man going to be hanged?' asked Dulcie. "'Yes.' "'Oh, I am—' she was going to say sorry, but checked herself, warned by Morton's angry glance, and slipped her hand lightly under his arm as they walked side by side to the house. "'I am glad your suspense and trouble are over,' she concluded. "'We have only half an hour to spend with you, Dulcie,' said Sir Everard. "'I have to dress for the sheriff's dinner, and I dare say Morton is anxious to get home and tell his people the result of the trial.' "'I'm never anxious to leave Dulcie.' answered Morton, but I have no doubt my womenkind are impatient for tidings. "'I shall just have time to give you some tea,' said Dulcie. "'Oh, poor things! How tired and worn out you must be! Did you get any luncheon?' Oh, "'There was an interval for luncheon, but neither Morton nor I ate any.' "'Then you shall have some sandwiches. Our cook has a particular talent for sandwiches.' She's almost as good as a German. I suppose you know that the Germans have a hundred and fifty different kinds of sandwiches, Morton. I blush to say that I was unaware of their profound art in that line. <laughs> oh, they are a great people, the greatest Egyptologist, fiddle-players and cooks in the world. Oh, provided always that you like German cookery, said Morton. Dulcie was in high spirits, delighted at getting her lover back again, forgetting for once in her life to be sorry for a woe that came within her ken. She gave Scroop her orders about the tea. It was to be something sumptuous in the way of afternoon teas. There were to be sandwiches and cakes, and some of those gigantic Australian grapes, which were just now in their highest beauty. There was a noble fire of logs in Dulcie's room, a blaze that lit up the pots and pans and dark oak walls and Japanese cabinets and high-art piano. The double octagon table was drawn near the hearth, the tea-tray was there already, an old silver circular tray on a fringed crimson and white damask cloth. Everything that wasn't Japanese was early English, or at least as early as Queen Anne's time. Never did a room look prettier or more comfortable on a cold winter's evening. Morton went to his favourite chair in the corner screened by the projecting chimney-piece, and seated himself with an air of unqualified enjoyment. He forgot everything except that he was with Dulcie. Sir Everard sank into his deep armchair without a word. 
he left the young people to be happy after their own manner but with dulcie her father was always foremost oh, how tired you look dearest she said leaning over him and taking his hand and how feverish your hand is such a long day and the ride home in the cold have been too much for you yes dear i am rather tired the atmosphere of the court was horrible enough to cloud any man's brain no wonder there's a good deal of nonsense talked in law courts occasionally the counsel are half asphyxiated don't look so anxious dulcie i'm only tired there's nothing else amiss with me you'd better not go to dinner father my love the dinner will do me good i want the reaction of lively society after the gloom of to-day do you mean that the judge and the counsel will be lively papa the judge after having condemned a man to be hanged do you think they ought to be in mourning for him dulcie or that the judge should wear the black cap at dinner oh, no papa but i cannot imagine any judge with proper feeling going into society and making merry after having doomed a man to death poor dulcie the judges are made of harder stuff than little girls like you they go into society and eat and drink and talk wisely or wittily as the case may be and i believe the hanging judges are generally the greatest bon vivant dulcie sighed and began to pour out the tea morton who in her smiles had forgotten all his troubles did ample justice to the german sandwiches and hothouse grapes and drank numerous cups of tea or perhaps as the pretty japanese cups were very small and shallow it may be said that he drank one dish of tea in several instalments sir everard would eat nothing he lay back in his chair silent prostrate after the excitement of the day End of chapter 9